Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive, back today with author Carolyn Baker. Carolyn Baker, PhD, is the author of Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse, The Relationships We Need to Thrive, and Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. Her previous books include Collapsing Consciously, Transformative Truth for Turbulent Times, that was in 2013, Navigating the Coming Chaos, a handbook for Inner Transition in 2011, and Sacred Demise, Walking the Spiritual Path of Industrial Civilization Collapse in 2000. She lives and writes in Boulder, Colorado, and manages her website, www.carolinebaker.net. A former psychotherapist and professor of psychology and history, Carolyn offers life coaching for people who want to live more resiliently in the present as they prepare for the future. She is now podcasting every Monday on the new Lifeboat podcast. Did I say that right, Carolyn? Well, it's the new Lifeboat Hour, and every Monday I post it at my website and at Facebook. Excellent, excellent. So I spent the day yesterday with your book, which was really um, quite a wonderful thing to do. And I'd like to open my conversation with you by by saying it like this. This is your new book, and it's Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Global Crisis. And so here we will have a conversation about the human shadow. And I'd like to begin by saying that you say, we need to look at the shadow the earth shadow and the human shadow, so we can love ourselves and the earth community. Could you speak to that? Absolutely. Um, that is a huge reason for looking at the shadow and committing to do shadow work. We don't just look at it. We have to really become familiar with it and work with it. And at the end of every chapter in this book, I have very practical practices that people can use, tools. This is a hands-on tool kit book. Uh, tools that people can use for working with the shadow. And uh, I also list uh, toward the beginning of the book um, other reasons why we would want to work with the shadow. Um, 
in order to experience more genuine self-acceptance because the shadow is that part of ourselves that's unconscious that, that we keep unconscious because it doesn't match with who we think we are. Um, and so when we're willing to work with it, and it's, it's usually not pretty to look at, we experience more genuine self-acceptance. We also diffuse what we perceive as the negative emotions that might erupt unexpectedly in our daily lives. Um, we are likely to feel less guilt and shame with respect to our so-called negative feelings and actions. We begin, when we do shadow work, to start recognizing the projections that color our opinions of other people, and we learn how to reclaim those projections. Um, we're able also to heal our relationships through honest self-examination and direct communication, and we have access to and can use an untapped storehouse of creative energy through our dreams, artistic expression, and sacred ritual. So all of those are really important reasons for working with the shadow, and if we don't work with the shadow, then we have all of the things I've written about in this book in terms of the collective shadow. You know, there are two shadows. There's the personal shadow mm -hmm. that we all develop throughout our lives, and then there's the collective shadow that millions of personal shadows create. And so this book is about both and how we can heal them. You mentioned the word shame, and... To me, that's a very important word because in my own shadow work, I realized that much of it was about toxic shame. Mm -hmm. Would you be willing to speak about that? Yeah. Um, you know, toxic shame is, is something that we develop in this culture for, for many reasons because because of the toxicity of the culture. And it's very difficult for children to escape that toxicity, uh, even, even as parents do their very best to try to raise children uh, with, with good esteem and without shame. Um, you know, I talk a lot in my work about the difference between the ego and the sacred self. Uh, the sacred self is the core of us that is pure and holy and untouched that we come in with from our divine origins. Mm -hmm. um, and then throughout our lives, we are forced to develop an ego because we can't function in the world without an ego. Right. Um, but eventually, that ego, loaded with so much baggage, begins to get in our way. And, and if we're going to really walk a spiritual path and be conscious human beings, we're going to have to deal with that ego. And so toxic shame is, is often, well, I would say always, a huge part of the ego that has to be dealt with. And whether we say, uh, oh, I'm better than you are, I, I'm, I'm so evolved, I'm so wise, I'm so whatever... Uh, that's, an, that's a manifestation of ego, but so is shame and beating ourselves up. If we think we're better or if we think we're lesser, both are manifestations of the ego that need to be cleansed and purified and transformed so that we can operate, um, I call it the divine operating system, mm. we can operate out of the divine operating system of, of the sacred self.
Beautiful. So you speak about the uh, victim, tyrant, rebel, savior, uh, wheel. <laughs> I have practiced that wheel a lot myself, going round and round and round. So tell us why it's useful to be aware of that cycling. Absolutely. Um, I believe it is one of the principal dynamics of our culture that is very toxic, but if we are willing and able to work with it wisely and use it as a good tool, um, it can be transformed. Now, what I've written about the victim, tyrant, savior, rebel, uh, I've learned from a mutual friend of ours, Leslie Temple Thurston, who also lives in Santa Fe, where you do, yes. uh, wrote a wonderful book several years ago called The Marriage of Spirit. And that book is one of the most profound tools for clearing the shadow. And in there, she talks about this dynamic um, that, that we just kind of fall into in this culture because we are programmed to be victims, tyrants, saviors, rebels, and we reverse those roles or we switch roles constantly. When I'm being a tyrant, I'm being superior, I'm perhaps dominating in subtle or blatant ways. Um, When I'm being a victim, of course, then I'm at the mercy of the tyrant. I feel shame and less than the tyrant. Um, When I'm being uh, a rebel, You know, I might be thinking that I'm fighting all of those things and breaking free of that cycle, but I'm really not because I can be guaranteed without consciousness and doing the shadow work I need to do, I'm going to end up being victim and or tyrant in the next day or minutes or hours. (laughs) Um, And likewise with the Savior, you know, we we want to rescue, we want to... um, be the champion of good and justice. And, you know, on one level, all of those things are true. But again, it's, it's from the ego. If we're doing these things from the ego, then we're guaranteed to get in trouble, and we're going to end up as victim, tyrant, rebel, or savior in one of those roles. And so in the back of the book, I have a process that Leslie has given us for transforming the victim, tyrant, savior, rebel dynamic Uh, through a series of squares that anybody can do. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the back of the book and look at her uh, examples of squares, you can see how to do them. And I have done many, many dozens, hundreds of squares in Leslie's work, and I have just found it to be amazingly powerful because it helps me in a very non-threatening way go deeper and deeper down through the layers of my shadow and get to things that I'm not really consciously aware of and thereby begin to transform them. Carolyn, would you tell us, you've, you've mentioned the word ego a few times, and I, I wonder if you would tell us what you think is good and useful about ego. Sure. Well, in order to... Uh our ego, we have to have one, right? Right. <laughs> and, and so um, part of growing up in really any culture is developing an ego, um, you know, learning skills and learning uh, how to speak and write and 
move about in the world, um, to become educated, to learn what we need to learn in order, in order to go out and find a job. And these days, whether you have a good ego or a, diff- or a small ego or a bad ego or mm-hmm. whatever kind of ego, it's mm-hmm. pretty hard to find a job. But, right. <laughs> um, you know, finding a job, um, using your creativity, um, falling in love with another human being and starting a family, launching your career, all of those, starting a business, all of those require an ego. And in the first half of life, you know, approximately through our 40s, our job is to develop our egos and use them in order to do all of the things that I just mentioned. But then we come to an impasse, usually. It can happen through loss. It can happen through just realizing our own limits. We come to this place in our lives, almost everyone in this culture comes to that place of, wow, is that all there is? Mm -hmm. Or, gee, I've done all the right things or did what I thought I was supposed to do and this happened that was terrible and this happened that was tragic and, oh my God, what do I do now? And that is when we kind of come to the end of the line with the ego and the soul, the divine within, is calling us to go deeper, calling us now not to ditch the ego, but to attend to the soul. And as we attend to the soul, we begin to discover our deeper meaning and purpose. We begin to discover the sacred self, and we just naturally want to integrate that more in our lives, but the self and the ego often bump up against each other. So much of our spiritual work is learning how to let go of the ego, embrace the divine self, and we still have an ego, we still need an ego, but it diminishes in its power and its place in our lives, and the divine begins to grow if we're committed to that spiritual path. Hmm. This takes us to... um... The chapter, it's all about power. Uh-huh. I have for many years watched uh, in myself what I what helps me personally call false empowerment. Mm-hmm. Something would be strange and then I would look and I will say, ooh, I acted out of a desire for false empowerment. And uh, so I would, uh, I would love it if you talked to us about the right, right, the right self power, and also the right use of power. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm very much a fan of empowerment. I think it's important that we all be empowered but that we not be under the spell of power as our culture teaches us to be. One of the things that we do not have in this culture that indigenous people have are initiations, formal rites of passage. Um, We get those rites of passage in different ways in this culture because long ago industrial civilization abandoned those important rites of passage. Why were they so important? 
They were important because, and, and I'm taking this from my friend Richard Rohr, who is a radical Franciscan priest who lives down in Albuquerque, mm-hmm. um, and he talks a lot about these rites of passages, and he, he, he gives five purposes for them, and they're very simple. They were designed to teach a young person that, first of all, life is hard, that doesn't mean that life is nothing but hard, but that life is not always comfy and cushy. And, you know, it was, indigenous people did not have this obsession with happiness that we have in this culture because they had this balance between joy and suffering. And so they learned that much of life is hard, difficult, challenging. Another purpose of the rite of passage was to learn that, you know what, I'm not that important. You know, I'm important, I'm a human being, I'm a living, sacred being, part of the community, but it's not all about me. Um, A third purpose was that your life is not about you. It's about how can I serve, what can I give, how can I use my talents and skills for the benefit of all living beings. A fourth purpose, you're not in control. Mm And this, I think, is one of the most important teachings that has to do with power. Because in this culture, we come to believe that we are in control of everything and that we should be in control of everything. And we have so little idea of how little, actually, we have charge of. And a final purpose Mm -hmm. of the initiation was, you're going to die You know, we are all mortal, and when we get that in perspective, we begin to realize the limits of our power. And so one of the most important tasks on the spiritual path, as we begin to let go of ego, as we reclaim the divine and and foster the divine and our desire to let the divine self expand, in order to do that, we have to surrender. Mm. We have to surrender to, to situations in our life which present themselves as initiations for people who don't have formal rites of passage, meaning things like divorce, like losing a job, Rest. like bankruptcy, like possibly losing a child, like uh, getting a terminal illness, or having a terrible injury that changes the body and mind forever. Those are all initiations that we are confronted with, and the first step in dealing with them is to be able to find a way, somehow, sometime, at some point in the journey, to surrender. And I believe that surrender is one of the most powerful positions in the universe, because it's not about the power of the ego. It's not about power over. It's about power with. Mm. And it's about true spiritual empowerment. Could you give us a personal example of surrender and how it, it truly felt to you to, to surrender? Well, in the book, I talk about... Um, you know, I, I talk about the shadow for the first um, ten chapters. And then I start getting very personal in the last two chapters. And in chapter 11, I talk about a friendship that I developed a couple of years ago with a homeless man and his dog. 
And when I tell this story, sometimes, and I'm not going to tell the whole story here, but sometimes when I talk about this experience, I've had people, especially women, say, oh, but you were letting yourself be abused. Mm -hmm. Because in my friendship with this guy who has mental illness issues, he would often say things that were insulting or hostile or oppositional. And I was at a point in my life, and, and this was in the throes of my work with the Marriage of Spirit and Leslie Temple Thurston, where I was learning to... I was learning to let go of the ego and allow love and compassion to grow in me. And so I would sit with this man as he sometimes said things that were offensive. Mm. And I didn't fight back. And I didn't defend. And I felt these energies and these feelings pass through me. And it was painful. And what it did is it took me right back to being a child in in the kitchen of my abusive parents mm-hmm. and how the slings and arrows of their projections hurt me. And yet I was able to stand in my observer, stand in my witness, and just be present with it without taking it on. It doesn't mean it didn't hurt, but I was able to allow it. And the more I did that, the more I did that, the more strength I I got, the more compassion I felt, the more patience I experienced, the more I was able to be with this guy. Now, I have to admit, sometimes I would just have to say to him, okay, this is enough for today. You're really insulting me now. You're really disrespecting me. I'm going to have to take space. Mm -hmm. And I would come back a couple of days later, Maybe he felt the same. Maybe he was completely different. Usually he was completely different because my going away scared him. (laughs) Uh, But I experienced this incredible transformation as a result of surrender and a tremendous empowerment, just a feeling of empowerment that, well, I can do this, and I am not debilitated by him or memories of my parents or the the pain and wounds of my childhood, and this is because I'm able to let go of ego just a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more each time. That's about as personal as I can go with this. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I I often think as an adult you could walk away but what about the child in the kitchen who cannot walk away? Well, how, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's how does cool. that sh- how does that how does that become a shadow in our life? Very good question. Because it does. Yeah. You know, those wounds become a shadow of shame, like you talked about earlier, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or hostility, or defensiveness. Or um, I'm never going to let that happen to me. Or when I grew up, I'm going to fix all this by being a perfect parent, never doing this to my children. In myriad ways, a shadow develops out of that wounding. Mm-hmm. And then our work as adults in midlife or earlier is to go back to those wounds and work with them and allow them to be transformed. And, and that's really hard work and often very painful. 
You give an excellent uh, example. You speak about um, Obama saying, uh, I, I, I don't know the exact quote, but yes, we tortured people, but that's not who we are. Right, right. Yeah, um, the notion of exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, and, uh, you know, he said that in the context of a, a torture report that came out in 2014 or 15, I'm not remembering exactly which year, uh, but exposed that we had done terribly torturous things uh, during the Iraq War and, and on other occasions. Um, and then he qualifies it. Yeah, we torture some folks, but, but we've learned from it. That's not who we are. And the truth is we haven't learned from it at all. Um, and this, this, this statement prompted uh, an African-American journalist, Charles Blow from the New York Times, to write an article about this and really question what Obama was saying. And, and really the focus of this article is Charles Blow is saying, who are we? Who are we as a nation? We need to stop and look at who we are. And, you know, I'm hearing this a lot at, during this present election campaign. I'm hearing a lot of people who are very concerned about the possibility of Donald Trump becoming president exactly. saying, who are we mm-hmm. that we would choose such a leader? Well, I can tell you who we are. We are people with an enormous shadow, and that shadow is being magnetized by this candidate. Yep. And this candidate is giving us permission, permission to be racist with no responsibility, no accountability for the genocide that we inflicted on Native peoples when Europeans came to, the, to these shores, yes. with no willingness to be accountable for slavery and racism. And, and just the, la- the, the last few days, we've seen Obama visit Hiroshima and say, I'm not going to apologize for the United States dropping the first nuclear bomb on Hiroshima. No, 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 I, I don't need to do that. And, and no apology or willingness to claim empire. As a matter of fact, Trump is saying, go for it, folks. Be proud of the genocide. Be proud of the racism. Be proud of being a bully. Be proud of being an empire. That's what you say. Uh, the American dream, consumerism, exceptionalism, what it has become, Narcissism and entitlement. That's what you say so clearly in your book. And to me, those, uh, those, those adjectives really describe what Donald Trump is speaking to. Absolutely. Yes. And, um, (laughs) you grew up in Europe and I think most people who, I believe you grew up in Europe. Yes, I did. I did. I grew up in Paris. Okay, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> so anyone who's not from this country, who who can stand outside the United States and look at us, you know, with clear eyes, will see, you know, the obsession with consumerism, exceptionalism, narcissism, and entitlement. That's our way of life. That's as American as apple pie. Um, and it's very sad, it's tragic, because of the suffering that we have inflicted on other people in the name of these qualities 
and that we continue to inflict with no awareness, no willingness to look at the devastation that these characteristics have brought on the entire earth, on all living beings, on the planet, on ourselves Mm -hmm. and each other. This uh, slogan, Make America Great Again, is is the definition of exceptionalism. Right, because I, I want to keep asking, uh, when exactly was it great? <laughs> was it great when we were genociding these Native Americans? Was it great when we brought the slaves here? Was it great when we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima? Um, has it been great since we've decided to be a bully and an empire and conquer the world? Yeah, when exactly was it great? Now, we've had great moments. Yes, I mean, what drew me here, it was great when when Americans landed on the moon. That, yeah. re- that really drove me across the ocean as an immigrant. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we've had our great moments, like the, the landing on the moon. And we've had our great moments with um, people like Abraham Lincoln, I think, who who was able to go so much deeper than most presidents ever have been able to go. And, you know, he talked about the better angels of our nature. And I can't help but think of him when I listen to Trump, who I think is drawing out like a poultice draws out poison, Mm -hmm. drawing out the darker angels of our nature. That's right. That's right. But we've had our we've had our good moments, um, and if we could, and I don't see this happening anytime soon. But if we could become accountable, if we could look at our shadow, mourn for our shadow, grieve for our shadow, make amends for our shadow as much as possible, we could be transformed. I have a friend, Barry Spector who wrote a wonderful book called Madness at the Gates, and I've had him on my podcast a number of times. And Barry talks about one of his fantasies is, wouldn't it be amazing if we had a a president who would go into a football stadium or a coliseum where there were thousands of people, and he would call together a number of Native American leaders, and in the middle of the field, they would all gather and the president would kneel and apologize to them for the genocide and then bring in African-American leaders and apologize to them for slavery and bring in people from Hiroshima and Nagasaki and apologize to them or other people that we have, you know, we call collateral damage in our bullying of the world and our endeavor to be an emperor and an empire to make amends, that would transform us beyond anything you or I can imagine in this moment. It it certainly has transformed millions of us in the practice of the 12 steps, which includes making amends. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. One of the most beautiful um, parts of the 12-step program, (laughs) I'll tell you, uh, it is so freeing when we can make amends and take responsibility and open our hearts and say, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And something just, some profound uh, connection opens when we're able to do that. 
And and the beautiful thing that I learned, because it wasn't in my language, in French we don't have that word, that making amends means the willingness to change yourself. Yes. To change your behavior. Yes. It's not just about I'm sorry. Exactly. Because I've seen what I did and what it cost you and what it cost me. Um, I will change, I must change, I want to change. It may be difficult, but I will find it within myself. I will find the grace with which to do this because it is so important. Yes. um, Liberation from my shadow, yes. I want to thank you because as I was reading yesterday, I I was penetrated by the way you uh, write about institutionalized racism. Mm. It took me deeper into understanding my my own racism, so please speak about that. Yeah, in Chapter 4, it is entitled American Apartheid, I Can't Breathe, Black Lives Matter. And of course, I Can't Breathe were Mm. the last words of Eric Garner as he was taken down on the streets of New York and 2014, I believe it was, um, for selling loose cigarettes in his little his little store on the street. Really, a very very minor offense. Um, and as we look right now at what's going on in the African American community, police community relations, I don't remember in my lifetime that I've, that they've ever been so oh, so difficult, so unjust. Um, with almost every incident uh, incident of a police officer assaulting another person or killing another person, and it's usually an African-American person, no charges or minimal charges, or maybe they get fired and that's about it. But really that white policemen are able to do these things so often with impunity. And... You know, uh, racism is all about othering. It's all about that fundamental separation that Western civilization has taught us. We are separate from the earth. We are separate from each other. We are even separate from parts of ourselves. You're the other. I'm better. And if, if you're the other, I can exploit you. Um, I can objectify you. I can scapegoat you. And right now, particularly where we are with um, the racism that's really, boy, it's returned in fashion. It's kind of like I'm reminded every day now of 1954 and Brown versus Board of Education and and children being escorted by federal troops into Little Rock High School. I mean, oh, my God, it's, it's like deja vu all over again. And in these times, I strongly encourage that we all do some work on learning about racism and healing our own racism. Mm-hmm. In, at the end of Chapter 4 in my book, uh, in the tools section, um, I suggest viewing a documentary that anyone can watch online in, in full. It's called The Color of Fear, produced by filmmaker Lee Moon Wah. And it's a powerful dialogue among a small, multicultural group of men 
in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, you really learn a lot about your own racism by watching this. I also suggest reading everything you can get your hands on by Tim Wise, who uh, is doing wonderful racial justice training all around the country and the world. Tim Wise, he wrote Dear White America, A Letter to a New Minority, and several other books. This is a time, especially in the face of rampant racism, all ramped up, fresh, uh, new but old, when we really need to be working on our own shadow racism. So I strongly recommend mm-hmm. that for um, people who are not African Americans, that we really look deeply at what has brought us to the place where a presidential candidate is inviting us to be racist. So perhaps now is the time to look at how we can transform entitlement in ourselves, or I'll make this personal, I'm afraid of the... um, of what I see as the wave of entitlement running across this country in terms of people um, voting or not voting, but wanting Trump as a leader. Uh, I, I see it as a wave of entitlement. And uh, and in order to see that really well, I, I need to look at the sense of entitlement within myself. Right. So maybe... That's why this is happening, just maybe. Well, I think so. Um, You know, I keep coming back to, in my work, um, what I'm really focusing on now is, and and of course I did did great focus on this in my last book, Love in the Age of Ecological Apocalypse, Mm -hmm. cultivating the relationships we need to thrive, and understanding that Everything is a relationship. I have a relationship with the phone I'm speaking on. I have a relationship with the computer I type things on. A relationship with my dog, with my home, with you, you know, uh, with everything. Everything is relationship, and we've forgotten that, and I believe that is a basic root of our our sense of entitlement. Um, Disconnection from ourselves, each other, and the earth. And so I believe that's the crux of our work, our work right now. How am I connected deeply with the earth? How am I connected with you? And how am I connected with myself? And as we begin to explore the depths of our connection with self, other, and the earth, and when I say self, I don't mean the ego self, but our whole self, our whole being, as we begin to explore those connections, I believe that we begin to diminish our consumerism, our sense of exceptionalism, narcissism, and entitlement. There's a movie called The Room, and uh, it says, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's the story of a, of a, a, a woman who was... Um, kidnapped and uh, kept in a room by her by this perpetrator and in that room she has this child she has a child and at some point she's freed 
And when she goes home, she one of the things she says to her mother is, if you hadn't taught me to be so nice, I might have not gone with that man. Now, that's a very hard moment. And I'm thinking about the difference between being gentle and being nice. I mean, transforming violence into gentleness, not just being nice, you know. Well, being nice is about pleasing the other person. Um, Being gentle is I stand in my truth, and I'm not necessarily there to please you, but, um, you know, my intention is not to harm you. But gentleness, without uh, having to please, I think makes us very clear that we are able to stand in the observer self. And this is really important. I want to emphasize that we all have an observer self. Um, Sometimes we just kind of think, well, it's either my ego or the self. It's either my ego or the divine. You know, which one? And there's a third piece of us um, that I think is more connected with the divine and less with the ego that allows us to stand outside a situation and watch. And we don't necessarily do that without emotion, but we're, we're not swept away, we're not spun out by the emotion. And we can witness what's going on. We can bear witness in a situation and be very present, but we're not there to please. Mm. We're there to attend to and to see it as it is to the best of our ability. And then I think if we're able to do that, um, we won't necessarily be nice. We might say, no, thank you, I'm walking away from this. Uh, no, thank you, this doesn't feel good to me. I'm paying attention to what I feel in my body right now, and it doesn't feel good, that sort of thing. So that's where um, gentleness trumps niceness, I think. Yes, and, and perhaps gentleness trumps. Trumps. Yes. Trumps. <laughs> <laughs> it's a word I'm not so fond of using anymore. I'm kind of getting away from that word. It slipped in there for a moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like the difference between leery and leery. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you should know that one. I know that. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, I do want to ask you, there are a lot of people who say to me, if Trump becomes president, I will leave the country. I'm surprised I'm hearing this from Americans. You as a philosopher and uh, as, a, as a political philosopher, tell us how you, you will face or are facing this, uh, this crisis of entitlement. I'm kind of stepping up my work in that respect. Um, This fall, I'm going to be uh, offering another online symposium. My team and I are putting together another online symposium in which we're going to be interviewing a number of guests who are speakers, philosophers, thinkers, and feelers in Mm -hmm. this very area that we're talking about today. Um, And with the emphasis on how do I connect with myself, with you, and with the earth. And... I think that it is going to be a time of really pulling together because, uh, you know, you can flee 
and you can go off and do your individualistic thing in Canada or Belize or, you know, mm-hmm. wherever you want to go to be away from the toxicity of the United States, and who can blame you? But then there are problems in those places, too, which I would particularly not particularly want to take on. So I think we're going to be, and, and I've been talking with a lot of friends and allies about this, we're going to be compelled to pull together and help each other and and be very aware that we are on a death spiral. Not that we're not on a death spiral right now, but the death spiral might be ramped up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to Trump speak a few weeks ago on his foreign policy, and and I was eating my lunch and almost lost my lunch when I heard him say I wouldn't hesitate to use nuclear weapons. And and I, I had to get up and and go outside for a moment because, you know, and, and the thought just came across, you know, well, I you know, we're all going to die at some point, obviously. But what if what if none of us is here in five years because we've been taken out by nuclear war? You know, what a waste. We were heading that way anyway as a planet because we're creating a, a planet that's not habitable. But how tragic if, if that happens. And eventually it will happen. I, I have no, no doubt that eventually it will happen one way or other. I think we... You mean ex- extinction of the extinction species? Extinction and uh, nuclear, nuclear destruction, because it doesn't even have to be a nuclear exchange. I mean, look at all of the nuclear power plants that are leaking or in meltdown right now that we're not being told about. Hanford up in Washington, Indian Point in New York. There's a blackout on the severity of the situation in these plants. And, you know, as industrial civilization unwinds and unravels, you know, we're going to see a lot of these plants becoming inoperable. And, you know, when they can't operate and and they don't have the energy for that, then they go into meltdown and blah, 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 you know, on and on. So uh, it is really, really important that we pull together and support each other, regardless of the outcome and that we do our work, whatever that work is that we're called to do, that we follow our passion, that we deepen our spiritual path and our commitment to these tools that help us heal the shadow and become more compassionate and more loving. Well, this is a great part of your work. I mean, personally, I, I consider that uh, that that we, we have a choice we have a chance in the here and now by deepening our relationships as you say by paying attention to our relationships like right now absolutely and um i don't know where we are in terms of our time but i i want to move toward the ending whenever that is yes with this quote from chris hedges It's the way he ends his wonderful book, Empire of Illusion. And I I think this is something we should all hang on to at the moment. This is the last paragraph of Empire of Illusion. And he says, Our culture of illusion is, at its core, a culture of death. It will die and leave little of value behind. It was Sparta that celebrated raw militarism, discipline, obedience, and power, 
but it was Athenian art and philosophy that echoed down the ages to enlighten new worlds, including our own. Hope exists. It will always exist. It will not come through structures or institutions, nor will it come through nation-states, but it will prevail even if we as distinct individuals and civilizations vanish. The power of love is greater than the power of death. It cannot be controlled. It is about sacrifice for the other, something nearly every parent understands rather than exploitation. It is about honoring the sacred, and power elites have for millennia tried and failed to crush the force of love. Blind and dumb, indifferent to the siren calls of celebrity, unable to bow before illusions, defying the lust for power, love constantly rises up to remind a wayward society of what is real and what is illusion. Love will endure, even if it appears darkness has swallowed us all, to triumph over the wreckage that remains. Wow. And you, Carolyn Baker, what is your reason to live? My reason to live at the moment is to extract all wisdom from my life experiences to become a wiser human being that is more deeply in touch with the earth, with other living beings, with myself, to serve with compassion, to bear witness to suffering, and to do what I can to bring an end to separation wherever I am. Tears of gentleness, I feel. Is there anything else you would like to say? I feel we have come to our moment uh, to close this particular conversation well I would just thank you for having me on the show and um, for your work Joanna and um, for for your honoring of my work and the opportunity to speak what I know resonates with the hearts of many many people um, at this time of great uncertainty a time of great loss, a time of challenge for all of us on every level. And so I would urge people to go deep within the soul and do this work that is calling all of us to do. If I can be helpful in any way, uh, I want to be, uh, please go to my website, carolynbaker.net, and check out the work, check out the podcast, the books, uh, the life coaching, and uh, let's come together in this time of unprecedented challenge. Thank you deeply, Carolyn Baker. Thank you, Joanna. <laughs>